Money FM 89.3, the best of your money. Money and me on your money, only on Money FM 89.3. This is Money and Me. I'm Michelle Martin. Have you thought, gee, I wish I could look into Tomasic's portfolio and find out what they're buying um, and learn from them? Or maybe you're thinking, you know, I tried to get a Taylor Swift concert ticket. I did, okay? I was 10 minutes late and boom, there I was, number 1,500,000 on the list. I gave up immediately. But maybe you're thinking, will Taylor Swift's concert now benefit UOB shares? Well, we, we're going to cover some of those questions for you today with the man who has written a couple of articles covering those very ideas. Tim Phillips is head of content and investment lead for Prosperous, CGS, CIMB Securities, and the man singularly responsible for me being on the path to racking up one million miles. Tim, how are you? I'm good, Rochelle. I'm glad you're still on the miles game. I hope you're you're making progress. All right, Tim, help us understand the state of the stock market. Things looking good. S&P 500 up 19%. NASDAQ composite about 44% through the end of July from the start of the year. Um, Mm. So how have stock markets done so well despite all this uncertainty over rising financing costs, rising inflation and interest rate hikes? Well, I think we can put it down to two letters, right? AI. Um, We've probably heard that being bandied about so much, but that's really driven the majority of the gains so far in the market um, in 2023. And we all hear that talk about the Magnificent Seven, right? Tesla, Mm. NVIDIA, Microsoft, Amazon, Apple, etc. Those big guys, I think they've driven most of the gains, probably about 80% of the S&P's gains so far this year. Um, But that's also come in concert with the fact that the whole SVB blow up in March didn't turn out as bad as feared and the Fed stepped in and and provided liquidity for for banks and for lenders. And so I think that's really helped. um, That's really helped the overall picture. But beyond that, also, we've seen inflation come down. We've seen employment hold up. And so this whole narrative of soft landing, which everyone thought was outlandish, maybe you know, six, seven months ago now is becoming a bit more of a plausible uh, scenario. Mm. But I think in terms of, you know, evaluations, it's still trading above the sort of uh, historical average S&P. It doesn't look that attractive on a valuation basis. And there's still a lot of uncertainty going into the second half of the year. Um, So I think for investors, there's still a little bit of hesitancy in terms of we're wanting to buy stocks because if you can get four or five percent in the treasury, why would you be putting your money into stocks at this point? Good point. Good point. Are you optimistic over the next few months with the bond market looking like it is? Are you positive that this trend will continue, this upturn that we're seeing? I think the market is probably a bit too optimistic. I mm. personally don't think that this trend is going to continue in the second half. But then again, you know, I think everyone is, is playing that, that that guessing game at this point. Who would have thought where we would be today at the start of the year in 2023 after the 2022 that we had? But I think in terms of the market expecting the Fed to start cutting in 2024, that was what we expected in 2023, right? It, it was with the market expected the Fed to start cutting rates in the second half of 2023. So that keeps getting pushed out. So how long the Fed funds rate is going to stay elevated at sort of 5% or if it's even going to peak at 55 to 5.75 with, you know, the, the latest 
the yeah. latest Fed funds rate hike mm-hmm. being 5.25 to 5.5. How long is the Fed going to keep it there? I think there's a lot of uncertainty about that. And I think there's a bit too much optimism with the market saying that they're getting, you see a lot of analysts get giddy about rate cuts in the first half of 2024. But personally, why, why would you want the Fed to be cutting in 2024? Because if they start cutting in 2024, it means the outlook for the American economy is absolutely dire. Mm. So I don't think that's something that we should want as investors. We don't want the Fed to start cutting rapidly because if they start cutting rapidly, that is not going to be a net positive for the stock market if the economy is tanking. Um, so I think that's something we have to keep in mind as well. Useful insights there. We don't necessarily want to see uh, the Fed cut rates because what would that say about the U.S. economy? All right, I want to turn to a an article, very interesting one that you wrote on uh, Prosperous.Asia and you basically led us into. Tomasic's um, portfolio and you looked at Tomasic's three top performing bank stock holdings for financial year 2023. Can you share with us what the three top performing bank stock holdings are? Yeah, definitely. So I think with Tomasic, there's always a lot of investor interest about what they're holding and because of their role in in trying to manage all the the money that Singapore has, has accumulated and the government has accumulated. But the, the narrative of the past year has been really bullish on banks because yeah. of rising rates and you've seen in expanding net interest margins and expanding mm-hmm. net interest income. So that's very natural. And the three banks are in order is a Standard Chartered, which is a London listed uh, bank, but really mainly focused on Asia and uh, Middle East. Uh, and then number two is ICI, ICICI Bank, which is an Indian bank, Indian private sector bank. And then third is a HDFC Bank, which is also an Indian private sector bank. Um, but I, I would point out that ICICI Bank and HDFC Bank, even though they're listed on the Indian Stock Exchange, which is limited to only Indian citizens or um, people with, with Indian nationality to buy. It's quite a closed-off stock market, but they actually have listings in New York Stock Exchange. So uh, investors you know, globally can actually access their ADRs, so American Depository Receipts. Um, and they have really been standout performers over the long term in India because you know the, sec- the sector there is still fresh. Uh, there's a lot of need for, for credit. Uh, the deposit growth is super strong. I mean, if you just compare something like Standard Chartered, which is actually the top performing for Temasek in terms of total shareholder return just for one year, I think it was about 23%. Over the past seven, eight years, it's really struggled. And that's mainly because there's been a a plan for it to turn around its um, its business. And Temasek has a pretty large stake in the bank, I think about 16%. Um, but in terms of where it bought its stake back in 2006 at around 15 pounds, you know, standard chartered shares today are sitting pretty far below that um, that that sort of price. So it's it's not ideal for standard chartered uh, for for Temasek rather. Um, standard chartered share price today is around seven pound 45. So you're talking about 50 percent haircut on that on that position. Uh, and so if you compare it to DBS, which has been a standout performer for the past decade, it's not. Uh, ideal, but their shareholdings in both ICICI Bank and HDFC Bank have done pretty well. And for people who aren't aware about the Indian market, I think it's pretty obvious that there's a massive need for credit and the penetration of all these products that we take for granted, like credit cards, that just doesn't exist in India today, right? There's still 
a five point. If you think about the penetration rate of credit cards in, uh, versus the Indian population, we're talking about five point five percent of the Indian population have a credit card, right? That's as of the beginning of this year. Mm-hmm. So the amount of runway and growth for the for those two banks is huge. And HDFC actually has just merged with its parent, which is HDFC, a, a housing developer. And so now they're around the fourth or fifth largest bank in the world. So they have an, a market cap of about 150 billion US dollars, uh, HDFC. And ICICI Bank is around half the size. But ICICI Bank has actually outperformed HDFC over the past five years. It's gone up. Its Indian listed shares have risen around 200%, whereas HDFC Bank has only risen maybe about 30 or 40%. But I think that's just a large uh, law of large numbers, rather. ICICI Bank has really improved its uh, sort of return on equity, its net interest margins a lot more rapidly, I guess, than mm. HDFC. Mm-mm. But HDFC Bank has is, is been a really, really strong long-term outperformer. So I think the Masek sees a lot of opportunity in the Indian market, but in terms of their overall stake in these banks, it's below 2%. So it's nothing, um, it's nothing massive, I would say. In terms of the two Indian banks and their ability to capitalize on the growth story in India, who would you say is slightly ahead, ICICI or HDFC? I think based on the past sort of five years, mm-hmm. I think, I think ICICI Bank has probably more growth potential, but if you're looking for more stable and stability and uh, I, I guess more of a presence in the market, then HDFC Bank is probably, you know, quote unquote, probably the safer option. Um, but I think both of them are pretty, pretty strong, strong operating franchises. They both have very good digital presences and they're building out mm-hmm. their digital capabilities in India. Mm-hmm. And if you think about something like a state bank of India, which is, you know, state run, it's, you would compare that to a state run version of the bank in China, like in, you know, ICBC type CCB, China Construction Bank. They're just very slow moving. They're very, you know, inefficient. They're bloated cost base. And so these two banks are growing their deposit base super quick by around 20% uh, KGAR, right? You know, the domestic loan portfolio as well is also growing really quickly. So these guys can deploy capital very efficiently and they've got really strong, uh, sorry, NPL ratios, so non-performing loan ratios. And in terms of ICICI Bank, that's improved. So I think prior to maybe sort of 2018-17, ICICI Bank was, was lagging, was uh, was an underperformer versus HDFC, mm-hmm. mainly because its NPL ratio was higher and so they'd have to keep more in reserves, but they've managed to improve their lending standards and they've managed to bring that ratio down. Whereas with HDFC Bank, it's actually been pretty stable at about 1.1 to 1.4%. So it hasn't really moved much. Whereas with ICICI Bank, they've managed to bring that MPL ratio down. So that's maybe partly a reason why it's also outperformed over the past sort of five years. So ICICI trades on uh, the New York Stock Exchange under the ticker IBN. HDFC IBN. trades mm. on in New York as well. Their ticker is HDB. Why do you say Indian banks have been some of the best investments in the financial sector globally over the past decade? I think it's just a structural story, right? In terms of the amount of lending that is, is there, it's a very cash-based economy uh, in terms of in terms of where they're able to get credit. It's, it's, it's starved of credit. And so these private sector banks that are looking for opportunities to grow, they've really managed to tap into that opportunity. And if you actually look at the the long-term, long, long, long-term track record of mm-hmm. HDFC, uh, their long-standing CEO actually stepped down in 2020, I think late 2020. And The Economist did a really interesting uh, comparison of the CEOs, top CEOs, top banking CEOs in the world and their, their creation of shareholder value. 
uh, and really this CEO, Aditya, Aditya Puri, who, who stepped down, he was an ex-city uh, uh, sort of banker, I think, and he opened or he started the franchise up or he became the CEO of the franchise in 1994 when uh, India's banking sector opened up uh, and HDFC started. And over that period from 1994 to 2020, under his tenure, HDFC Bank returned around 16,200%. So on an annualized basis over those sort of uh, 26 years, that was around 22%. So you can imagine the amount of opportunity there was. And this was at the beginning of, you know, India really opening up its, its banking sector. And so banks like ICICI Bank, which also started in 94, incidentally, ICICI Bank and HDFC Bank have really taken the opportunity to grow their loan portfolios, grow their presence, grow their um, grow their card portfolios, their wealth management. And so there's a lot of opportunity um, and there still is, I think, a lot of opportunity in the banking sector in India. Just love the story that you've shared with us this morning. <laughs> Tim Phillips joining me on yeah. the line. I've been getting a lot of mail from banks encouraging me to take <laughs> cheap, cheap loans out, you know, and that yeah. got me thinking. Thinking about this next story that we're going to talk about. Uh, when Taylor Swift, the mania descended, and then we learned about the number of people who ran out to apply for credit cards with UOB, many people started asking, to what extent will this uh, grow UOB's bottom line? What does this mean for UOB shares? And uh, what what is your take on that? Well, I think UOB actually, like all Singapore banks, right? They've done very well in the past quarter and two quarters, and they've seen a really big rebound in terms of their credit card spending because of travel. And I mean, we saw this with Visa and MasterCard in the US as well. When people started traveling, right, they started spending on their cards. And we all know that we get hit. If we spend on our card, we all know personally we get hit with that like 3% fee or whatever it is. And that's margin that these banks take and they love it. So so any any opportunity for the banks uh, to, to give cards to people and they go overseas and spend on foreign currency, you know, transactions, um, that's come in pretty strong. So you've seen that rebound in the card businesses for all three banks, you know, in, in the second quarter. So in terms of the actual applications, I, I think I saw that UOB did come out and say they've had a uh, whatever percentage boost, uh, you know, 30, 40% boost in, in applications just because of Taylor Swift. <laughs> and so yeah. there's that Taylor Swift effect. Mm. And I don't know if that's sort of self-fulfilling in, in the fact that people are just going to apply for more cards. And if they're actually going to spend on it, it's completely, maybe that's more pure speculation. Mm. But I think there's definitely more of a, um, I mean, personally, when I look at the actual card scene in Singapore, it's very attractive to use UOB cards for miles. But if you're actually just buying it, if you're just applying to get a Taylor Swift ticket and you can't, then I'm not sure how much we can rely on that as investors for them to spend meaningfully on those cards, yeah. uh, you know, in, in the future. Or if it's going to be literally, I'm going to apply, get it, and then cancel it once I go to the Taylor Swift concert, or once I've secured Taylor Swift uh, mm. ticket. So I think that's less of a a needle mover for the banks. I think for DBS and UOB in particular, it's these acquisitions that they're integrating at the moment, which is in UOB's case, the city uh, city retail franchise in Southeast Asia, which they've nearly completed with Thailand, Malaysia, Vietnam, uh, Indonesia. Those retail franchises are, are being integrated and should be completed you know, in the next quarter or two. And then for DBS, the Taiwan uh, acquisition of uh, cities retail franchise in, in Taiwan, which should be completed by the middle of this month uh, in, in August. So I think those two will help the bottom line much more materially than, say, the 
EUOB effect on, or the Taylor Swift effect rather on these EUOB credit cards. Yeah, because it's about how will UOB retain all these new customers, you know, and then exactly. will they spend on these cards? Will they spend? That's the key. And how important <laughs> is the credit card business to, to UOB? I think the credit card business is, is pretty important. I mean, in terms of its fee income, I, it makes up a a decent chunk. It probably makes mm. up about, you know, 15 to 20%, but it's not as important as loans and trade-related loans and, and wealth. You know, I think the wealth story for these three banks is really underplayed because the wealth management businesses are, are growing heavily. And we've seen that with capital inflows from China and ASEAN, from all this uncertainty in, in the Chinese economy. And so we've seen Singapore really benefit. And if there's capital inflows and wealth inflows into Singapore, who's going to benefit first is the big three banks because they have the biggest presence. Indeed. And, and they have the biggest teams, right, to, to, to attract that wealth. So we've seen that in the wealth management businesses that picked up in the in the second quarter. And we've seen we've seen these AUMs that these banks have also grow. And that's positive for them because they're earning fees on those AUMs, on the assets under management. If they're earning one of, you know, 100, 150 basis points, if they're earning money off that that's recurring, then they're going to continue to grow that as long as they grow their AUM. And that's what they've been doing really well. And so you say long-term investors focus on the regional strength of UOB. Yeah, I think the regional strength is the key for for investors. I, I, I kind of see the different stories of the banks in, in geographic terms. I mean, mm. DBS is obviously a Singapore story. I mean, all three are really Singapore because that's their core. But if you think about the satellite stories with, with DBS, you've got a little bit of, of North Asia, Taiwan, and, and their Hong Kong franchise, which is quite strong, as well as their recent acquisition in India. Mm. And then if you think about UOB, it's really Southeast Asia focused, right? I mean, you have Singapore, and then you have Malaysia, and Thailand, and Vietnam, and this acquisition with City, which they're growing. And then with OCBC, it's also a bit more of North Asia, Singapore, and, and the Hong Kong, China story with, with Bank of Singapore as well. So I think there's all a bit of a different mix. Uh, but Singapore, at the end of the day, is the core for all three of these banks. And they are continuing to benefit with rising rates. And whether it stays elevated, we had a lot of analysts at the beginning of this year saying, oh, you know, rotate out of banks and get into REITs because rates are going to get cut in the second half and, and look where we are now, right? Oh, in terms boy. Of, yeah. And so I think it's a good hedge if you are thinking about REITs, which is which is a great idea long term as well. It's an income play. But if you're if you're looking at the barbell, if you're saying that our rates going to get cut, then maybe REITs are, are potentially going to be a net positive or net winner. But if rates are going to stay elevated and perhaps maybe go even a bit higher, then mm-hmm. banks are probably going to benefit and continue to benefit on those net interest margins and their net, net interest income. Great way to think about things in the stock market. Uh, Tim Phillips is my guest this morning. He is Prosperous Head of Content and Investment Lead. And he also writes at his blog, TimTalksMoney.com. So let's talk money. What is your money tip for us this morning, Tim? Well, I've been thinking about insurance a lot because I've been just just renewing my insurance and life insurance and, and dealing with all that. And just thinking about what is being sold to us in Singapore as consumers. You know, there's I think insurance is really quite a big part of the scene in Singapore, which it should be. Mm-hmm. But beyond that, I think it's important to think about what type of insurance you actually need and what stage of life that you're in. So say you've just graduated from university, do you need to have a massive sum assured and do you need to have you know, a whole life term policy in in in, in respect of what insurance you're going to buy. Because I did a comparison between term life and whole life, and term life just seems a lot cheaper because you haven't got that investment component in there. Mm-hmm. And term life is a lot more flexible in, in terms of that you can actually just cancel it maybe once you get to 
know, 50 or 60. And if you've got kids, I think you need to have that that assurance that if anything happens, then you've obviously got that that payout. And But beyond that, do you need life insurance when you're in your 70s and 80s? I'm, I question that sometimes because if you or your kids are very self-sufficient and they're earning, do you need to have, if anything happens to you, is, is anyone going to be relying on you for an income? So I think those are questions that I think about from a perspective of the need for that type of insurance. And I think for listeners who are thinking about what type of insurance to get, we really need to go out there, do our own research first off, but then also seek advice maybe from a certified financial advisor, but an independent one. I think that's something I would really like to stress, an independent financial advisor. If you're going to go to speak to someone from, say, Manulife or AIA or Prudential, whatever, one of these insurers, of course, why would they say, no, you don't need this, you need this? Uh, you, know, you know, you don't need this type of insurance, which is, which is uh, really expensive. You need this cheaper type of insurance. There's always going to be an ulterior motive if you ask an insurance agent what type of insurance you need because at the end of the day, they are trying to sell you something. So I think the advice, it needs to be independent as in there's no, instant, there's no incentive, there's no upside to this person telling you this is the type of insurance that you need. Um, and I think in the way that the market is structured here in Singapore, there are a lot of incentives and hidden incentives that we don't realize as consumers. And perhaps when you speak to an agent, they may not have independent advice because they have uh, incentives, right? And I think that's just, that's just part of the market. But I think it's something that we should be aware of as consumers when we do our own research. Yeah, I just want to stress that, you know, the advisors align with those companies. I'm sure some of them are absolutely fabulous and totally balanced as well. But the point is yeah. you want to look out for an advisor who is not incentivized, incentivized. to sell yeah. you a certain policy sell, because exactly. that's how you know that exactly. your interests are going to come first. Are going to be aligned. Yeah, that's it. You want your interests to come first mm. and not to be pushed product. I think that's the key. You just want to make sure that they've got your best interests at heart. I know you're a young dad. What do you consider to be paramount, important, must-have sort of investment? products? I mean, is it disability, hospitalization? You know, yeah, what you obviously, I think your health insurance, that needs to be that needs to be very comprehensive. Mm-hmm. Um, but beyond that, if you're thinking about life, it's, it's uh, for me, it's just a, a, a decent sum assured. And I think the, the, the main benchmark is that it should be 10 years, a multiple of 10 of your annual income that should mm-hmm. cover you if you maybe have kids or if there's dependence. Um, and then maybe mm-hmm. a critical illness, maybe, I don't know, maybe 50 to 100,000 critical illness benefit as well. But mm-hmm. beyond that, I think whole life is difficult with the insurance, com- the investment component. Very expensive, I've, yeah. It's very expensive. Mm-hmm. And then does it, does your investments, do they, do they match up in terms of performance? I think this is something we also maybe don't keep track of as consumers is does the investment component beat an ETF of the S&P or, or MSCI World ETF. You know, I think that's key. You need to really understand what your investment component is doing. Because there's an opportunity getting, cost, yeah. Yeah, there's an opportunity cost. And are you getting the, the investment return that you're entitled to? Because mm. if you just put your money into an ETF, that's you're entitled to that return, right? Because that's the return over five years, 10 years. So that's the t- return you should get. And maybe don't look at your nominal return, but look at your return relative to what the market is doing. Because the market return is the return you should be, you should be entitled to. Love that. Tim, thanks so much yeah. for joining no us today with this great money tips. <laughs> Thank you. Tim thanks. Phillips, Head of Content and Investment Lead for Prosperous CGS CIMB Securities. Before acting on the information on Money FM, please consider if it's suitable for your own investment objectives, financial situation, and risk tolerance. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at audio.sg or download the audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O, audio at the App Store and Google Play.